and congratulations on 10 years. Of course, it's all God's grace, but nevertheless, you're the ones who have endured, who have witnessed, who have loved your neighbors here in Sharjah for a whole decade. That is not a small chunk of time. Your pastor sent me a photograph of the commissioning service at UCCD. There were 15 of you who were standing on the platform as the elders on the other side of the platform uh, prayed for you and sent you out symbolically. You know what I noticed? I noticed that all of us in the photo looked considerably younger then than we do now. Except Priya. <laughs> Anand was there with his trademark goatee, but much less gray speckled throughout in those days. I was obviously younger then, I noticed. The world in its present form is passing away. The photo reminded me, I mean, just visually, that for 10 years we have prayed for you all regularly, and what a joy it is to be in partnership with you and to celebrate this occasion. Uh, just being here this morning, seeing this facility, seeing you in, in assemble, assembled worship is uh, really stirs my soul, so I give thanks for what the Lord has accomplished here. Now, let's see evidence of God's grace. Let me ask everyone to please stand. Go ahead, stand. If you're a member of Grace Baptist, please remain standing, and visitors and everyone else, please take a seat. So here we have the members of this congregation standing, and now, if you join Grace within the last five years, that means since 2019, if you join Grace since 2019, please take a seat. So that means the rest of you are the old-timers. You are people who have been members of Grace since before 2019. That is the first half of your life as a church. So you take that snapshot. Now, if you're one of the original founding members of Grace from 2014, remain standing and everybody take a seat. And so here you see uh, amazing evidence of the Lord's grace. I mean, most of the original founding members uh, have, have now left you and moved on. But still, from this small group here to all of you seated here, this is God's work among us. Please have a seat. Thank God for that. You know, during these 10 years, uh, Anand has periodically updated the elders of ECCD by, by sending us status reports, letters on how the work is going. It's been so encouraging, not only hearing about conversions and baptisms and weddings and marriages strengthened, but even hearing about the difficulties and the, the displacements from one location to another, disappointments, and how you've grown through those times. Uh, we thank God for what he's doing in the life of Grace Baptist. Now, to put things in, in perspective, imagine if you had been in Sharjah 50 years ago. What would it have been like to live here and to worship with other believers? I actually found a report from 1974, 50 years ago, uh, from a lady named Joan Davenport, who was a nurse at the Sarah Hosman Maternity Hospital. And here's, here's how she described it. In the evening at 7 o'clock is the Sunday service at the Mission Hospital in Sharjah. The waiting room has been transformed. The chairs are set up. The hymnals are distributed. And the lovely organ is rolled into place. Approaching the hour, several individuals are seen walking to the entrance of the mission. They are followed by others who have just arrived in their cars. These are joined by the Indian nurses coming from their quarters. Everyone enters quietly and reverently, then bows his head in silent prayer. The room has begun to fill. 
the organ is playing. Presently, the song leader goes forward and begins the service with the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. After a short prayer, more favorite songs are sung. While everyone is singing, I scan the group and see that our Indian nurses are present. The missionaries, too, are in their places. An Indian couple is seated on the second row with the British-Canadian couple just behind them. I notice a few others here and there, making between 15 and 20 present. I follow the service through the singing, prayer, and scripture reading. But where is the preacher? For 15 years, we've been without an independent board minister. Once a week, a missionary from Dubai comes to preach in these Sunday services, but because of his work, he cannot be regular, for he is not always free at this hour. A printed message is kept ready to be read on short notice by Marion Willits when he does not come. Please pray with us that this need may be filled by one of the Lord's own choice. The church then, I think, it's no exaggeration to say that it was small, it was embattled. They had no pastor. Sometimes one of the nurses would just read A.W. Pink to the members. It struck me that church in Sharjah has never been easy. Mez McConnell wrote a book called Church in Hard Places. I believe you could have qualified for one of the chapters. The Lord has been good, but there have been difficulties too. Moving here and there, living and witnessing in a Muslim emirate, navigating the regulatory difficulties of this environment. But it's not just Sharjah. It's Fujairah. It's Ras al-Khaimah. It's the whole of the UAE. In fact, in some ways, it's everywhere. In the outside world, you know, we've never been particularly admired or appreciated. Not long ago, the New York Times said, Christianity's got a branding problem. And it's kind of true. The church is comprised of ordinary, imperfect people who don't always live up to their calling. People like us. People who know Christ but who still need the forgiveness of Christ. C.S. Lewis captured this in the Screwtape Letters, which were letters written from the perspective of one demon named Screwtape to another demon, uh, his nephew Wormwood, giving advice on how to trip up a young Christian. Here's what he said. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees, referring to the young Christian, is the half-finished sham Gothic construction on the building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean in pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothing, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. There is, I think, an ordinariness to Christianity, and a routine that can be deceptive. I mean, there are plenty of warts and blemishes on all of us, but is that the whole story? Is that who we really are? Who we will always be? This morning, to use the description that Will gave us earlier, the prophet Isaiah 
pulls back the curtain and introduces us to the church as she really is in Isaiah chapter 60. Please open your Bible to that chapter. And I want you to see in Isaiah 60 that even though it may not seem so to outside observers, this assembly this morning is by far the most important meeting happening in Sharjah today and on any day. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession, for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be other utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Isaiah was a prophet. He was living some 700 years before Jesus Christ. He gives us here a forecast of the church. Not as the church appears to her critics, 
but the church as she really is and as she one day will be. So this morning, three portraits of the true church. Three portraits of the true church. First, she is glorious. Now, this comes as a shock, actually, if you've been reading through Isaiah, when we recall who God's people are by nature. Just turn back one chapter to chapter 59, verse 2. 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters with wickedness. The people of Israel were, by nature, just as wicked as any other nation in the world. There was nothing special about them except God had chosen them, rescued them from slavery, set them apart as his royal priests, but despite every advantage, you know, the majority of Israel were ungodly. They were unbelievers. And so they were eventually defeated, deported, sent far away into exile. But Isaiah foresaw a day when God's people would be totally transformed. Look at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, when would all this happen, this glory rising upon them? Would it be after the return from the Babylonian exile? Not even close. Because if you keep reading in the, New, the Old Testament, there's a description of their return, but in disappointing, even dismal terms. Here we have the church victorious, the church glorious. So here in these verses, we have a vision of two things. First, what Jesus will do for his bride when he comes again, at the very end of time. So an eschatological vision. Looking into the future, Isaiah describes her like a city with Old Testament symbolism. You know, a temple, like we saw at the end of verse 7, with walls and gates. We saw that at verse 10 and 11. A city whose name is, look at the end of verse 14. A city called the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, Zion was the name of the hill in Jerusalem where God lived, in the temple. And as the Bible unfolds, that word Zion comes to stand for God's residence in heaven, from whence he will come again. So here we have a vision of the ultimate Zion coming down to earth. Brothers and sisters, when Christ returns, the glory of the Lord will rise upon his people, as the Apostle John said it. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And how does the church respond upon his return? Arise, shine, for your light has come. So it's a word of resurrection power. This is our ultimate hope, shining all the more brightly against the dark backdrop of all the human misery, all the, the sin and suffering that we see in verse 2, for behold, Darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness, the peoples. In the same way that Tabitha was cold, unresponsive, she was dead until she heard Peter's voice arise. So it will be for us when Jesus Christ returns. But it's not only a, a distant future event that's being described here. This describes something that's somehow already among us in our churches. I mean, what did Jesus call his followers in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. So the picture is that the world is plunged in darkness, you know, where the blind lead the blind, falling into a pit. The world's problem is not optical but moral. So Jesus said, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
But when he gave that sermon on the mount, standing along the mount, mountainside, looking out over crowds of what probably were largely uneducated peasants, what was his answer to the human dilemma? You are the light of the world, he said. Ordinary, unschooled, seemingly unimportant people, they were the hope of the entire world. And not just them. It applies to us today in Dubai, in Sharjah. Ordinary believers, people who maybe have read no philosophy at all. And yet we know and understand more about life than the most renowned experts who don't know Christ. How can that possibly be? It's because of who we know. The one who said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. However ordinary, however unsophisticated we may be in the eyes of the world, we are the ones who have been entrusted with the message of life. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus and one of your friends invited you this morning or you found out about this church and decided to come investigate it, let me be clear with you that the sole cause of the problems today, everything from Palestine to pornography, including the problems in your life, the cause of your personal problems is this. Humans are separated from God. We were created to be with Him, to know Him, and enjoy Him, and to reflect His character to the world. But you and I, and all of us, have distorted that image of the picture of God so that our light has become darkness. And we've chosen to live that way. I wonder if you have noticed recently. So, jealousy and marital strife and greed and anger toward your parents. It can all be traced back to the selfishness of sin. But there is a way back to God. Jesus is the light. He came from heaven. The eternal Son, through whom the world was created, came in, took on human flesh, and lived a perfect life. He was condemned, crucified. He bore God's wrath in the place of anyone here today who would ever repent, who would ever believe, and then God raised him from the dead on the third day. And all of us who truly embrace Jesus as the Christ, he says, are the light of the world. Now, what does it look like for us to live that way in Sharjah in 2024? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You know that song we just sang, Awake, O Sleeper? Look at Ephesians 5 very quickly, and then we'll go back to Isaiah 60. Ephesians 5, verse 8. Here's how the Apostle Paul understands Isaiah 60. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and here he alludes to Isaiah 60, Awake, O sleeper, and Arise from the dead, and Christ will rise on you. What this means is that we who know Jesus Christ must wake up and shine. I mean, think, of, think of all the shining of churches in Sharjah and the UAE and throughout the last 2,000 years. Think of all the good done throughout history in the name of Jesus Christ. Literacy prison reform, 
orphanages, medical care, the abolition of slavery. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus have been leading the way. I mean, why did Sarah Hosman come here to Sharjah in 1952? To relieve human suffering. Before Hosman arrived, infant mortality was unbearably high and mother mortality as well. In those days, do you know that women, would, women delivered babies and to stop the bleeding, after delivery they would pack the birthing area with salt, which had the effect of sealing her shut, creating untold suffering, health problems. Dr. Sarah brought relief. She brought healing. And around the same time in Fajera, a midwife had this to say. She recalled, if you had two babies out of six or seven live, it was good because there was malaria. There was diarrhea. So I just think of the amazing lengths to which they went in order to share the gospel with these poor and struggling people and to care for all these babies and vulnerable mothers. That's your legacy. So what about you today? What are you doing to be the light of Sharjah? I've been thinking about granular examples, like specific ways you can be what Sarah Hosman was 50 years ago. Well, ask yourself this. Are you involved in the community? When you go to the grocery store, you know the person at the checkout counter? Are you getting to know her name? Are you inviting her to church? Are you inviting the poor into your home? Or how about this one? Do you invite non-Christian friends from Sharjah into your home and then invite church members to join you so that they can get to know the person as well? Are you starting Bible studies with neighbors here in Sharjah? These are areas where I want to grow as a follower of Jesus. And these are also the kinds of areas where I want our church to grow in Dubai. ECCD? I'm praying for that. I don't think that we're particularly strong in our culture of evangelism. So one book that I hope our church reads, and you guys as well, is it's by Max Stiles. It's called Evangelism. And the subtitle of the book is this, How the Church Speaks of Jesus. So not just individual, isolated evangelists. Yes, we need more of those. But I'm talking about how a collective congregation speaks of Jesus. Well, may that characterize our churches in the UAE more and more to the glory of God. How is it that the church is so glorious? It's not because she's the sun shining her virtue and sophistication on the world. It's because she's the moon simply reflecting the love of Christ that's been lavished on her. In Jesus Christ, the church is glorious, shining, weighty. And secondly, we see here in our chapter that she is global. So she is glorious, and she is global. That's from all over the planet, east and west. People are being drawn in the direction of the city of God like iron being drawn to a magnet. Look at verse 3. And nations shall come to your light. Do you see the attractional force? The kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons come from afar. And your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Bringing gold and frankincense. Bringing good news and praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Now, Isaiah is giving us a vision, 
It's a vision that's dressed in Old Testament clothing. So we have to think carefully here. These are symbols that are describing the church of Jesus Christ. E.J. Young said the prophet is presenting New Testament truth in figures belonging to the Old Testament. So when it says in verse 7, rams will be accepted on my altar, we shouldn't think this predicts a revival of animal sacrifices at some point in the future. Rather, it's an expression of commitment by these Gentiles who have come to the Lord. When it says, I will beautify my house, that points not to the rebuilding of God's temple, but to the rebuilding of God's people. So just to be clear, Isaiah 60 has nothing to do with the city of Jerusalem in modern-day Israel. It has everything to do with the new Jerusalem, the church that will one day come down out of heaven with the glory of God. So the New Testament calls the church a spiritual temple with living stones. And so now that Christ has come and beautified his people, the church is becoming a magnet for the whole world. This describes the modern missions movement. In verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Sons and daughters, these are Gentile nations joining the global church, drawn to her light. Of course, it's not the church's light. It's the light of the Lord shining through the church. In comes the abundance of the sea, the wealth of the nations, verse 5. Notice the eagerness of the people in verse 6. They're riding camels from the outlying regions, coming from all directions, praising God as they come, bringing good, good news. And you might not have noticed this, but they're coming from all four points of the compass. Midian and Sheba are in the south, perhaps Yemen, and Ephah is to the east in Iran, and Kedar to the north. But what about the west, toward the Mediterranean? Verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. What we have is a worldwide surge toward Zion from all points of the compass. Coming on the wings of the wind and flying toward Zion. Why is Zion so attractive? It's because Christ has made you beautiful. He has transformed you by the gospel. You are not who you once were. What a shift that is from the old covenant. Remember the old covenant. God was previously working only through one nation, the family of Abraham, the people of Israel. But no longer. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. Again, don't think here of a literal construction project, building walls. Rather, think of building God's kingdom through the inclusion of the Gentiles. Israel had been enslaved to the nations, imprisoned in exile. That's verse 10, where it says, in my wrath, I struck you. But now the true Israel would be glorified in God's presence. In my favor, I've had mercy on you. And what's the result? The result is that the parking lot is jammed. The spiritual city is crammed with incoming traffic. They can't even close their gates. Verse 11, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. You know, in the Old Testament, when King Solomon built the first temple, the original one, Lebanon actually sent the best of its cedars in order to beautify the building. So in the New Covenant, in comes the best of the nations, bringing with them their tithes and talents into the city, 
Even kings are serving the Lord. What this shows us is the zeal of a new citizen bringing in his artistic abilities and cultural achievements. Every citizen of this city loves to serve it. And the same goes with what I think is a difficult verse in 14. When kings and foreigners are bending low and bowing down at the feet of Jews they once despised, it sounds like the nations are subservient to Jews. Like they're coming in underneath the Jews. So a two-tier uh, people of God. But that would miss the point. What we have here is that the former top dog, the Gentiles who had uh, destroyed and defeated Israel, is now taking the low place in the community. So Gentiles are coming in with meekness and humility and an eager servant's heart. Alex Motier explains, Isaiah is stating the truth within the political terms required by the metaphor of the city. We all come into the church with glad submission. The CEOs among us are no more entitled than the unemployed. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free here. All are one in him. Which is why favoritism in a church is anti-gospel. Regardless of how we come to the city, what matters is that we come. Because look at the alternative in verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. To stay outside the city is to be cursed. That means people who will not bow to Jesus Christ, people who will not believe the good news, will be condemned. Now, it may be natural to want to believe in a God who saves everybody, no matter what they believe, but it's not biblical. You know, there's only one culture of salvation. And that's what we find here today. Enter the city and so be blessed. So again, superior in every way to the old covenant. Matthew Henry said, when we had baptism in the place of circumcision, the Lord's Supper in the place of Passover, and a gospel ministry in the place of a Levitical priesthood, we had gold instead of brass. Look at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So, no more bondage in Egypt. Now, who are your slave masters? Righteousness and peace. That's the kind of slave master that I want. I mean, is it not astonishing? No more need for defensive barriers. Now you call your walls salvation. Your gates praise. The end time peace has invaded the present time in this vision. And it characterizes our churches more and more. I mean, certainly not perfectly. We're not there yet. But the New Testament sees this begun in churches like ours today. But still awaiting fulfillment, consummation, when Christ returns. Do you remember from Christmas, not that long ago, remember the Magi? The wise men? They came from the east. They were bearing gifts. Do you remember what those gifts were? Look at verse 6. Look at the second half of the verse. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And in Matthew's gospel, it says those magi, they fell down and worshipped the Christ. And they offered him their gifts. This is a picture of the nations with all of their diversity, 
all of their wealth coming into the city. But Isaiah never suggests that they were contributing insights to the church. I mean, there is no hint in any of this that somehow their old religion was sufficient or that there are many ways to heaven and they were bringing in their diverse perspectives. That idea may be popular in universities and news media and workplaces today. That's not what Isaiah is saying. Look at verse 9. They're bringing in their gold and silver. Why? For the name of the Lord your God. They've abandoned the old religion and they've joined the new culture of the church. Friends, isn't this our mandate in the Emirates? To go and tell this message. Tell it to the world. What is the mission of the church? I ask you, is it to fund disease research? Or to repair housing slums? Or even provide health care? Is it to dig wells? All those things are great to do. All of them adorn the gospel. But they're not the mission of the church. This is one area where your pastor has been particularly helpful to me and to all of the pastors of the UAE, I think. He has taught and uh, warned and cautioned about some of the excesses in broader evangelical theology and has been extremely useful to me in thinking more carefully about the mission of the church because some evangelicals have tried to say that the mission is to use the wealth of the nation for cultural renewal. That is, the things we do now will somehow count for later when Jesus returns. And therefore, we need to get about the business of uh, sweeping the streets and cleaning up a fallen world. That's kind of like saying, if I lift weights now, I will have bigger biceps in the new creation, my resurrection body. I don't think we can say that. I mean, all these things are good, but the mission of the church is making disciples of all the nations and baptizing. As Edmund Clowney said, we need God not because we need his help to solve our problems, but because God's holy justice is our problem. Only he can make us right in his sight. And for that, you need Christ. You need his crucifixion. You need his resurrection. Your mission as a church is to go and tell the people of Sharjah. That's our calling. Sarah Hosman knew that, by the way, 75 years ago. It was said of her that Dr. Hosman's program is to give the gospel first before treating any patients. But the church not only goes, the church also draws. So Isaiah 60 shows us this magnetic appeal, the attractional power of the people of God. So, you're celebrating 10 years today. During the next decade, may this attractional pull characterize you more and more. You know, exercise gyms here in Sharjah, they try to fill social and spiritual needs of secular people who have rejected Christianity. But neither the gym nor Facebook can compete with what Isaiah is describing here. Don't forget, your church is God's evangelism plan. So what are you doing to become the evangelistic magnet for the city of Sharjah? The church is glorious. The church is global. And just one last thing. She is guarded. She's guarded. That is, she is eternally secure. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. The sun shall be no more. Your light, your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down. Nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning 
shall be ended. And here Isaiah takes us to the very borders of heaven, and we, we step on a chair and lean in and peer inside. Imagine a glory that is so radiant, so resplendent with its shining that there's no need for the sun or moon. I mean, clearly, this takes us to a day beyond history as we know it now, to a, a new earth and a new heaven. This describes a day like no other in verse 20. The sun shall no more go down. It is a unique day. Unending light in a new creation. This is a glory that we will not only see, but we will somehow share. Like we will actually be participants in this. So when Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, you can be assured the dead will be raised and we will behold Christ for who he is and be instantly transformed. So certain, so surely will this happen that Paul could say those he justified, he also glorified. And all we can say about it today is it will be inexpressibly jaw-droppingly wonderful <laughs> when he returns. Look at the end of verse 20. Your days of mourning will be ended. I take it that earth has no sorrow, that heaven cannot heal. Your days of mourning are real, but they're numbered. On that day, the church will be guarded gated, secure. No enemies at all, no threats, no need anymore for walls, just the perfectly pure. Only the morally flawless will be there. Verse 21, your people shall be all righteousness. They shall possess the land forever. Friend, this is where you're headed if you know Jesus Christ. This is your destination in verse 21. Now, today, you struggle with sin. But on that day, Jesus will present you radius without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. This is what Isaiah looked ahead to see. A day when the whole world would somehow reflect his glory. They shall possess the land, not just the land of Palestine, but the entire planet. This is your destiny if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So, are you disappointed with the church? I remember years ago somebody telling me, the church is just a human institution. I think Isaiah would disagree. What does God call it in verse 21? In the second half of the verse the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The careful gardener of this church is God himself, selecting, placing, tending. It's ultimately all his work, all his splendor, so we can trust him for another 10 years of growth here in this congregation. What did he promise in verse 22? The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. And he staked his reputation on it. I am the Lord. What this means is the church is guarded. She is eternally secure. Even though we're not home yet by any means, he closes the chapter by saying, in its time, I will hasten it. This is how the whole Bible ends. Did you notice the similarity between the passage we read earlier from Revelation and what Isaiah is saying here? John's vision in Revelation closes with these words. Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
So my friends, as you celebrate the last decade together, and you move into the second decade, may God's glory rise upon you and glorify you more and more. And along the way, don't forget your heritage. Don't forget those embattled Sunday evening meetings held long ago at the maternity hospital with 10 or 12 people. There were Bible readings twice a day with the Emirati patients. One-to-one evangelism was going on. And those weekly worship services on Sundays for the believers. Scripture was distributed to Arab women in Sharjah. Years later, in fact, one worker from the hospital said, she said of the Arabic New Testament, the majority of the local women took it home. So most extended families in Sharjah had some portion of the Bible. All this because of the boldness of an unmarried, handicapped female doctor named Sarah Hosman who actually wrapped her dispensary drugs in gospel tracts and distributed them. She sought and obtained permission from the sheikh for a house here in which to provide medical care. That's how the gospel began in Sharjah. The gospel will carry forward through you. It was 1952, and she was interacting directly with the sheikh. And after thinking about it, the sheikh began to express reservations about an explicitly Christian witness in his emirate. But Sarah replied to him with courage and candor. I thank you, but your highness, I am a missionary. I will give the gospel. That was Sarah Hosman's priority. And in the next decade, if the Lord tarries, will it be yours? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this precious deposit you've given us in the good news of our Savior. We pray that all of the churches of the UAE would unashamedly proclaim Christ, that we would become innovative and creative in looking for opportunities to engage with the perishing people around us. We pray, Lord, that you would increase our love for your people, those whom you chose before the foundation of the world who have not yet responded, increase our desire to see them coming in, even as we saw the magnetic pull of the glorified church in Isaiah 60. Lord, help us to be more enthralled by the glory of Christ than we are concerned by the, the worries of this life or the desire for other things. We lean upon you for this. We look to you for another decade of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen.